John McPherson is a cartoonist. Imagine with me one of his sketches. A couple is sitting on the sofa in their living room. They've had some friends over for dinner, and now they're boring their guests with, guests with slides of their recent vacation. On the screen is a picture of the man's wife. The husband is pointing passionately at the screen. He's saying, here's another one of Rowena waving. And that's the Eiffel Tower in the background. And if you look closely, and on and on this goes, him thinking that his friends are as interested in their stroll down memory lane as he is. The man is oblivious to what his guests are doing. They're on the other side of the room escaping through the window. They're making their great escape. They're climbing out of the window. They're escaping the unbearable, and you know what that is, home movies. I mean, if you want to hammer a nail in the coffin of a wonderful evening with friends, just say the magical words. Let's watch some home movies. Few folks enjoy reliving moments, not their own. And this is one reason Paul has been so reluctant to boast in his experiences. Talking about yourself, it sounds self-absorbed and self-serving. In fact, Paul has been a little embarrassed. He's ashamed of the fact that he's been resorting to the equivalent of home movies. And yet the Corinthians had put him on the spot. They had questioned the authority and the legitimacy of his ministry. And so to validate it, Paul has had to boast in his accomplishments. And yet in keeping with the man's humility, he, he talks about his ministry in an unassuming way. Rather than boast in the miles that he's traveled and the crowds that he drew and the amount of money that he raised and the number of people that he converted and the churches that he started, rather than boast in those kinds of things, Paul spoke of the trials and the burdens that he had endured for Jesus' sake. You see, Paul could have pointed to the outward trappings of ministerial success, but oh no, Paul pointed to his scars. Here's his logic. If I wasn't sincere, then why would I have, had to, why would I have endured these trials? And if I wasn't successful, why would the enemy have tried so hard to stop me? See, Paul had taken pride in his suffering. When he gets right down to it, it's our scars, not the stars, that prove our spiritual mettle. For example, the last experience that Paul mentions in chapter 11 was his humiliating exit from Damascus. Remember, his ministry had created such ferocious opposition, he had to escape over the wall in a basket. What a letdown. I guess you could say Paul was a real basket case. And yet Paul also experienced some pick-me-ups in his ministry. He was let down in a basket but he got caught up into heaven. In chapter 12, he continues boasting of his God-given revelations and the thorn that followed. We're going to read of his great pick-me-up, his experience in the third heavens. Chapter 12 begins, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. In other words, this boasting I've been doing, it's not preferable, but it's been necessary. You forced me into it, and so I come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Again, at the end of chapter 11, Paul had spoke of beatings and stonings and imprisonments. Now he goes from collisions 
to visions. He was beat up for the cause of Christ, but he had also been picked up in this revelation of Christ. Understand, Paul was a mystic. In other words, he relied on spiritual illumination. He lived with his feet firmly planted on the ground, but he kept his head and his heart in the heavens. Reminds me of the day the king's son was born. The king had offered his royal gardener to go to work, or had ordered his royal gardener to go to work, cultivating the most magnificent flower ever grown. It would be his son's gift to his bride when later in life it came time for the boy to get married. Well, the gardener began at the birth of the son with many years of experimentation and crossbreeding until he finally developed his masterpiece, the rainbow rose. Wow, how beautiful. On the day of their wedding, the couple, the son who's now grown up and his bride, they visited the royal garden for the bride to pick her rose. But when she stopped there at the rainbow rose, she picked the rose beside it instead, an ordinary rose. Well, the gardener was stunned. He said, what's wrong? How could you pick a common flower over my masterpiece? It turns out the new queen had discovered the rainbow rose's one flaw. It had no scent. It had been crossbreeded, but there was no smell. Everyone else had been so enamored by its beauty, they had ignored its one imperfection. But the queen hadn't. And do you know why? She was blind. She was blind. And in the same way, Paul was not so enamored by what his eyes saw. He was not so caught up in the physical and in the tangible. In many ways, he was blind to what this world afforded. He was not so caught up in the things of this world that he missed the spiritual scent, the promptings, the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. He was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. On countless occasions, Paul was given divine guidance and supernatural assistance. On the day he was converted, you remember, he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by that light. At Troas, he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia calling for him to cross the Aegean Sea and preach the gospel. During the storm, remember, at, at sea, an angel of the Lord appeared to Paul with assurance and instruction. Certainly, we need our Bible for guidance. God will never contradict His Word. You can count on it. But He is also able to confirm His Word and even augment His Word with specific, supernaturally discerned instructions. I encourage you to be critical of dreams and visions and angelic appearances, but be open. Be critical, but be open. Don't just look with your eyes. Be ready to smell as well. Be ready to sense what the Holy Spirit is saying and what the Holy Spirit is doing. Well, he tells us in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Now, Paul is so uncomfortable with his boasting that he begins to speak in the third person. This was a literary device, sometimes employed by the rabbis. It was a way of sort of deflecting the glory. You're going to talk about yourself, but you do it in the third person, not to attract attention to yourself. He says, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, 
such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now here Paul elaborates on one of these spiritual, mystical experiences that God had provided him. Now since we're uncertain as to when Paul penned 2 Corinthians, it's really impossible to pinpoint 14 years earlier. It could have been toward the end of his preparation in his hometown there of Tarsus, right at the beginning of his ministry. It could have been during his stay in Antioch before he launched his first missionary journey, or it could have been while he was on that trip in the town of Lystra. Remember something, something serious happened in Lystra. You remember what it was? Lystra was the scene of Paul's stoning. You remember an angry mob, they pelted him with rocks and left him for dead. Notice the state in which he was in at the time of his vision. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He wasn't sure at the time whether he was dead or just near dead. It could be that 14 years earlier actually parallels with the stoning in Lystra and the events that occur in Acts chapter 14. While Paul was being stoned, his spirit was being caught up into heaven. That's a possibility. What we know for sure is that early in Paul's ministry, sometime early in his ministry, God prepared him with this vision. You see, God knew that to withstand the fierce persecutions on earth, Paul would need a profound sense of the glories of heaven. God knew that. Paul says he was in the body or out of the body. He wasn't really sure, but he knows he was caught up. This is the same Greek word, by the way, that's used to describe the rapture. Could it be that God arranged a little mini rapture for Paul? That his body was whisked away to heaven and brought back? Or he could have been transported spiritually while his body was left in limbo, maybe under a pile of stones there in Lystra. This might have been a true out-of-body experience for Paul. What impressed Paul, though, was not what happened to him, but it was what he saw and heard. God gave him a glimpse, he says, of the third heaven. Heaven number one is the earth's atmosphere, the clouds, the stratosphere and all. Heaven number two is outer space. But the third heaven is literally out of this world. It's the spiritual dimension. Incredibly, Paul was caught up into the presence of God into his very throne room. You know, modern technology, modern travel enables us to go to the first two heavens on our own. But we can't reach the third heaven without God's permission and without God's transport. God took Paul to heaven in this vision. Paul repeats his astonishing testimony in verse 3. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, I love the word Paul uses to describe God's throne room. He calls it paradise. This is actually a Persian word which refers to a walled garden. You know, wealthy desert sheiks, they would deep, dig deep wells or they would build around a spring and they would import luscious flowers and shade trees and spice bushes to plant around the spring or the fountainhead. 
Then they would enclose it all within a wall. It became a private oasis for that sheik. This is the picture that the Bible gives us of heaven. Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Same word. Jesus saw heaven as an oasis. Hey, forget about heaven as a sterile white hospital corridor or a barge of fluffy clouds floating in thin air. Oh, no. Heaven is an oasis. It's full of lush greenery and thick shade and cool streams and delicious fruit and tantalizing smells. Tahiti and Hawaii and the Caribbean all combined can't touch heaven. Heaven will will be a new and better Garden of Eden. It's mind-boggling to realize that Paul was given the same privilege as the first man, Adam. He walked with God in the garden, in paradise. He heard mysteries explained by God himself. Paul had literally been to heaven, yet he had remained silent about it for 14 years. You see, this is the real miracle. Paul's restraint. That's the real miracle. He didn't jump on the talk show circuit and start blabbing about it. He didn't publish a book on his experience in heaven or launch a website, paradise.org. Nor did he use his heavenly experience in his fundraising letters to attract attention and draw money. No, no. What Paul saw and heard at the throne of God was too sacred, he said, too holy to try and put into earthly words. See, this is what makes me suspicious of pompous preachers today who claim similar experiences. Hey, if Paul stayed silent for 14 years, if he felt that his feeble human expressions could never do heaven justice, who are the people today who want to flaunt their visions and their revelations? Who do they think they are? When you really see the glory of God, you're hushed. You become speechless. God just takes your breath away. That's what God does. Reminds me of the 85-year-old couple. They'd been married for 60 years. They'd been in good health, mainly due to her interest in health food and exercise. When they reached heaven, Peter took them to their luxurious mansion. And as they oohed and awed the old man, he asked Peter, he says, Wow, how much is this going to cost? It's free, Peter replied. This is heaven. Well, in addition, their home backed up to this championship golf course. And each day, the course actually changed to some new golf course resembling one of the famous courses here on earth. The old man asked, wow, what are the green fees? Again, Peter replied, this is heaven, man. You play for free. Well, next they went up to the clubhouse and they saw this lavish buffet. Wow, how much to eat, asked the old man. Peter was growing impatient. He said, man, you don't get it yet. It's heaven, man. It's free. Well, it was starting to seep in a little bit. The old man asked him, he says, well, where's the low fat and the low cholesterol tables? Finally, Peter lectured him. He said, that's the best part, man. You can meet as, eat as much as you like of whatever you like, and you never get fat, you never get sick. Man, this is heaven. Well, that was it, man. He, he just went into a rage. He got angry with his wife. After Peter finally calmed him down, he asked him what was wrong. That's when the old man, he turned to his wife of 60 years and he says, this is all your fault. 
if it weren't for your blasted brand muffins, I'd have been up here 10 years ago. When we arrive in heaven, <laughs> when we arrive in heaven, we won't long for anything that we've left behind on earth. Heaven will be heavenly. We may never get as vivid a picture of heaven as Paul, but God has revealed to us our future glory in his word. That means that we know, before we begin our ministry, we know how it's going to end. We've seen the vision. You know, it's hard to endure the rigors of serving God here on earth without a clear view of its rewards. Always keep your eyes on heaven, and you can endure anything this world might dish out. Paul continues in verse 5. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Paul, in his humility, was far more comfortable discussing the low points when he had to cry out to God for help than he was the high points when God spoke to him. He says, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul was very leery of inflating his pride. He would have never gone down this path of boasting had the Corinthians not doubted his ministry, had he not felt that he needed to somehow substantiate and legitimize uh, his calling. You know, God also knew of Paul's human tendency to become proud and puffed up. And this is why God went to efforts to guard against that pride. Verse 7, Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Wow, you get to see heaven. You have a vision of heaven. That's a pretty heavy revy, if you ask me. And you tend to to lose your feet on, you get your head in the clouds when you see something like that. Well, God was quick to bring Paul back to earth. He gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him, to buffet him, to keep his feet on the ground, to remind him of his humanity. Notice Paul doesn't exactly identify it. He just calls it his thorn in the flesh, and I think that's deliberate. For God gives us all certain things to humble us and to keep us trusting in him and keep us looking to him. If he'd identified his thorn as one particular thing, then if we didn't have that, we wouldn't think we had a thorn. But we all have our thorn in the flesh that God gives us to humble us and keep us, keep us humble. Of course, all kinds of theories have been advanced about Paul's thorn. For me, the most plausible idea was that it was an infectious eye disease that flared up from time to time, especially when he moved into the warmer, more humid, tropical climates. It could be that the blinding light on the road to Damascus that he saw at the beginning of his ministry, his conversion, actually weakened his eyes and somehow he picked up an infection which caused his eyes to scab over from time to time. You know, in Galatians chapter 4 verse 15, we find some evidence of this. Paul is speaking of the Galatians' compassion toward him He says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could have. It's possible that Paul was having trouble with his eyes while he was there in Galatia. In Galatians 6 verse 11, he talks about the large letters 
or the large script in which he had written his letter. Again, possibly another indication that he was having a problem with his vision at the time, that he wrote in these big looping letters. You know, the Greek word translated thorn, it means a stake or a dagger. Literally, like somebody's poking something into your eye. A person suffering from trachoma develops a pus over the eye that causes the lashes to become brittle and at times even digs into the eyeball. You know, if you've ever had a scratch on your cornea, you can imagine the pain that such an ordeal puts you through. It feels like a knife or a thorn just thrust into your eye. All we know for sure about Paul's thorn is that it didn't go away. He writes in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He prayed three times, and yet the Lord's answer each time was no. This is something you're going to have to live with. It was this thorn in the flesh. Remember, Jesus prayed three times for the cup to pass from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps Paul was modeling Jesus' prayer. He prayed three times. But instead of taking away the thorn, the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. With the blessing comes a tendency towards pride. And to safeguard against it, God will often plant a thorn in our life to keep us humble. It's a reminder of how desperately we need God. It's painful, but that reminder is worth it. You see, the thorn is what keeps driving us to our knees. Even though Paul prayed three times, God refused to remove the thorn. A weakened Paul learned that the greatest strength is not found in oneself, but in God's sufficiency. May we learn that same lesson. Paul's thorn made him depend on God's all-sufficient grace in a way that he would have never experienced without it. Roy Campanella was an all-star catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers before he lost the use of his arms and legs in an automobile accident. But Roy, he had an amazing attitude. He saw his handicap as more a blessing than a blight. Roy once commented, We're a rugged breed, us quads. If we weren't, we wouldn't be around today. In many ways, we've been blessed with a savvy and a spirit that isn't given to everybody. An interesting experience helped to form Campanella's attitude. For months, he did his physical therapy at a hospital there on the East River in New York. And countless times, he rolled his wheelchair past a plaque hanging on the wall. One day, he stopped to read it. Then he reread it. And then he kept rereading it. Here's what was engraved on the plaque. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. I am among men most richly blessed. 
This was Roy Campanella's attitude, and this was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Rather than grow mad at God for not removing his thorn, he viewed it as a gift from God. He rejoiced in his weakness, knowing that it was an opportunity for God to demonstrate his supernatural strength in Paul's life. Paul finishes his thoughts on the thorn in verse 9. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He was strong in Christ's strength. We always stand stronger while leaning on the Lord than we do standing tall in our own pride and in our own strength. Verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. You see, the Corinthians, they should have appreciated Paul. Instead, they had forced him to boast and extol his own merits. The foolish Corinthians were proud of the wrong teachers. They had exalted the phony men of God. They called them the eminent apostles. You remember what that literally means? It means super apostles. They had called themselves the super apostles. But in no way were they superior to Paul. Though Paul saw himself as a nobody, God had made him a somebody. Verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. I mean, while in Corinth, Paul had proven his apostleship. He had worked miracles. Miracles being one of the signs of an apostle. The Corinthians had seen God himself confirm Paul's apostleship through the miracles that he had worked among them. For what is it? in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. There, Paul's pen drips with sarcasm. The only thing these super apostles did that Paul didn't was to try to take the Corinthians' money from them. Paul is saying, forgive me for not ripping you off like those other guys. See, he had taken financial support from other churches so that he could minister freely to the Corinthians. He didn't want pleas for money to cast a cloud over his motives. Verse 14, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, but I do not seek yours but you. Paul is coming again to Corinth, and he's not after their money. He only wants their hearts. He wants to win them to Jesus. You know, there are two approaches to ministry. Some pastors feel that the congregation exists for them. They'd never say it. They'd never admit it. But in a thousand subtle ways, this is what gets communicated. The church is there to build the pastor's dreams, to build up his empire. But there are pastors who serve the congregation. They exist for the people, not vice versa. They're there to give and serve and love and teach and help. And this was Paul's attitude. He had a servant's heart. He writes, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Oh boy, isn't this true? I mean, as a father, I'm the one who scrapes and saves and sacrifices for my kids. 
Believe me, my kids didn't do a lot of scraping and saving for me while they were growing up. One day, though, my kids will do that for their kids. Why? Because parents are the ones who lay up and pay up for their kids, not the kids for the parents. Which reminds me of the four kids who decided to chip in and buy Dad a a nice Father's Day present. One of the kids suggested, hey, let's get Dad a gift that we can all get something out of. They decided to buy him a wallet. You know, the best definition I've heard of a dad, a man who now carries pictures where he once carried his money. (laughs) And you see, he's saying that a true pastor will have the heart of a father. That he'll want to lay up for the people. That he'll want to serve and give to the people, not vice versa. Paul is saying that if if you want to serve for what you can get out of it, that's insincere. You need to want to give and, and you need to want to serve, and you need to want to help other people. Christian service is equal to spiritual parenthood. You get involved in ministry because you're willing to spend your life to see others grow and others mature and others prosper. You don't do it so that you can get something out of it. This is why Paul continues, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Isn't that amazing? Paul was willing to waste his life away on the Corinthians. I'm willing to spin and be spent in order to see you grow in your relationship with Jesus. He loved them so much that he would exhaust his resources and burn his energy and sacrifice his health to to see the souls of the Corinthians flower and flourish. Again, this is the heart of a true pastor. And when you find a guy like this, I hope you support him. And I hope you follow him. But that wasn't the Corinthians' attitude, sadly. Paul groans, Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. How sad is that? He was pouring out his life for them, and yet the more he loved them, the less he was loved. The church at Corinth was taking Paul's sacrificial ministry and this selfless minister for granted. You know, it's a kid's tendency to take their parents for granted. And sadly, some churches have the same lax attitude toward their leaders. This was the problem in Corinth. Verse 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? And of course, he's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is an obvious no. Paul was above board. He wasn't trying to take advantage of anyone. He said, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Not once. Did Paul or his pals try to manipulate or try to intimidate the Corinthians or to try to you know, maneuver them in a way for their own benefit? Not once. He says, again, did you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Paul's only motivation was to edify or to build up these Corinthians. Verse 20, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. (laughs) Paul is afraid that his next visit to Corinth is going to turn ugly. That he'll find these believers in sin, 
these believers taking the things of God for granted and he'll be forced to administer a sterner rebuke. He fears that what he'll find, he says, lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions and backbitings and whisperings and conceits and tumults. He's got a bad feeling about these Corinthians. These are the things he's going to find when he gets there. Now, here's an interesting exercise. Compare this list of fleshly behavior, carnal behavior, here in 2 Corinthians 12, with Paul's earlier description of God's love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to do it for you. Here's a comparison. Contentions. And yet, what does Paul say about love? Love is kind. Jealousies. Love does not envy. Outbursts of wrath, love does not behave rudely. Selfish ambitions, love does not seek its own. Backbitings, love is not provoked. Whisperings, love thinks no evil. Conceits, love is not puffed up. Here is tumults. There in 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long. See, the problem was simple. These Corinthians, they lacked love. That's why all of these other things were going on in their congregation. He says, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of their uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. The Greek word Paul uses that's translated mourn describes mourning for the dead. Paul's saying, I don't want my next visit to be awake for a dead church. I want to find some fellowship among you, not a funeral. Straighten these things out. Chapter 13. This will be the third time I am coming to you. And he's preparing now for this upcoming visit. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. He quotes here Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. For under the law... You needed two or three eyewitnesses to convict a person of a crime. And Paul basically here, he's mounting his case against the Corinthians. He's heard of their rebellion. That's one witness. Now he's, he's coming to see for himself. That would be two witnesses. He's saying, ready or not, here I come. And if he finds that in the mouth of two or three witnesses the same thing, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to deal with them face to face now and put an end to their lives and straighten these guys out with a stern rebuke. He's warning them. He says, I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Paul, are you threatening us? Absolutely, he's threatening you. He says, if I come and you haven't straightened these things out, I'm going to take you to task. The word translated spare means to spare in battle. Paul is declaring war on the false teachers that were stirring up trouble there in Corinth. He says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Paul was criticized for being weak in appearance, unpolished in speech, 
unpretentious in mannerisms. He wasn't as flamboyant as his critics. And the carnal Corinthians had mistaken gaudiness for godliness. Paul straightens them out here by pointing to Christ. He says, wait a minute. Jesus appeared weak. On the cross, he was the antithesis of what the world considers successful. Jesus wasn't pleasing to look at. Jesus wasn't pretty. Jesus shattered worldly criteria. He proved that physicality can never measure spirituality. And since appearances can be deceiving, Paul suggests that the Corinthians not only reevaluate him, but reevaluate themselves. He says in verse 5, he says, It's time you examined yourselves as to whether you're even in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Now here's the truth. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you are one. Just because you attend church and wear a Christian t-shirt from time to time and you sprinkle your language with a little Christian lingo and listen to Christian music and quote Bible verses, that doesn't make you a Christian. Paul concedes that some of these Corinthians may have been pulling the wool over their own eyes. They've been fooling themselves. They need to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. We all would do well to do the same thing. A mom overheard a little girl praying one night. Now I lay me down to rest. I pray I pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. The truth is, is that when we die, we receive our final grade. And it's a pass or fail, friends. Either you have embraced Jesus as Lord or you haven't. You've resisted Him or you've just never got around to taking Him seriously. But both receive failing grades. You know, my mom, she sang in the choir at our church for years. She played the organ for our church before she ever realized that she wasn't a Christian. I'll never forget one night we were having a revival meeting in our church. And, of course, the organ was playing, and my mom was the organist, and so she was playing. And all of a sudden, we all noticed that the organ music had stopped. And I'll never forget seeing my mom come around the side of the, the altar in her choir robe and walk up front to the preacher and shake his hand and tell him that she wasn't saved and she wanted to give her life to Christ. I'll never forget that. It's etched in my mind. But she was wearing the choir robe, in the choir, serving the church, the organist of the church. And finally, she examined herself. She realized that she wasn't really in the faith. As a kid, I was baptized three times, thinking that I was a Christian. And yet, I never really surrendered my will to Jesus. Didn't until I was 20 years old. It can happen. We profess what we don't possess. Sadly, hell will be shoulder to shoulder with church members. It'll be full of church members. Don't you be one of them. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you've never given your life to Jesus, by all means, do so today. I read of a young man who had enrolled in a seminary. But when the officials sent off for his college transcripts, there was a mix-up. 
People at the college recalled the fellow. They knew the man. He had been quite popular on campus. But there was no record of him actually attending the school. There were no classes, no credits, no grades in his record. When they contacted the student to clear up the confusion, he confessed. He had taken the money that his parents had sent for four years of college, but he had never officially enrolled. He went to class, but he audited the courses. He attended the college, but he was never part of it. And I'm afraid that's exactly what's happened to a lot of people in church. They're just auditing Christianity. They're taking the course, but they're not getting the grade. They're not actually enrolled in the school. They attend class, but they've never been enrolled. They've never truly become a part. When you audit the Christian life, friends, you don't get credit. You've got to firsthand sign up. You know, it's been calculated that by the time a person finishes college, they will have taken 2,600 tests and quizzes. There's one more exam that we all need to take. We need to examine our own heart. Test your own faith. See if you're in Christ and if Christ truly dwells in you. This is the most vital test you'll ever take. Well, by putting together several scriptures, I'll give them to you. You can read them later. Romans 5, 8, verse 9. 1 John 3, verse 14. 1 John 2, verse 29, and 1 John 5, verse 4. By putting together those verses this week, I constructed an SAT, a test for you to take tonight. It's the Salvation Acquisition Test, the SAT. Here are four questions you can ask yourself to see if you're in the faith or not. First, do you sense the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? If Jesus lives in you, there will be an inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. His Spirit will speak with your spirit. Second, do you love other believers? Is there an outer witness? Is there a camaraderie with God's family? Brothers and sisters will love one another. The Bible tells us that. Third, do you practice righteousness? I mean, what God puts in eventually wiggles its way out. A cleansed heart will end up producing a changed life and a purified attitude and conduct and then fourth are you overcoming the world have you experienced a newfound motivation and a reason for living that allows you to to resist temptation and stand up for jesus wherever you go these are the things that will be present in a life that's truly in the faith if you can answer yes to all four of those questions hey then you've got some confidence But if not, you need to seriously examine your own heart. You see, it's difficult to live the Christian life without knowing for sure that you are one. This is why God wants us to examine our hearts so that we'll have an assurance of our salvation. Paul adds, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. I mean, when Paul visits the Corinthians, they'll agree that he's a true apostle. They'll see the power of God in his life. He's about to flex his spiritual muscles when he comes back and sees these Corinthians. He says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified, for we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. 
Paul is not looking for the Corinthians to stumble so that he can come down on them or that he can prove his authority. He would love for them to be spiritually strong. He doesn't mind backing down and appearing weak. That would be fine with him. He just wants them to embrace embrace the truth. You know, I know people who like to criticize other people just to make themselves look good. Paul's saying this is not his attitude. He doesn't mind appearing weak if they'll do what's right and appear strong. He says, in this also we pray that you may be made complete. I mean, Paul's desire for the Corinthians was for them to be complete in Christ. That word translated complete means fully fitted, thoroughly equipped. You know, it reminds me of the first time you go snow skiing. It's a brand new experience. You have no idea what you need. You don't know about the boots and the bindings and the skis and the poles. That's why you trust the outfitter to equip you for the slopes. And likewise, Paul tells these Corinthians, I know you're new to the faith. You have no idea what it takes to grow. Paul says, I'm a spiritual outfitter. And if you'll listen to me, if you'll pay heed to what I say to you, I'll make sure you're thoroughly equipped to live this Christian life. If they would just listen to him, he would supply them with everything they need to grow spiritually and to be mature. The fact that the Corinthians had Questioned Paul, only delayed their growth. Verse 10. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. You know, a letter, the form of a letter, had actually enabled Paul to say some hard things to the Corinthians that he might not have been able to say to them face to face without you know, creating more friction. Sometimes you can get away with saying things in a letter that that you can't always say to people face to face. At least in a letter, they had a chance to digest and to sort of stomach Paul's rebuke before responding. Gave him a little breathing room. An opportunity to digest the truth can be helpful. Eat too fast and you oftentimes throw up. So Paul's letter had served that purpose. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. He's signing off now. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And then he tells them, greet one another with a holy kiss. Professor Michael Christian of Boston College has written two books on the subject of kissing. But since the release of his second book, The Art of Kissing, The good professor says that his love life has now gone downhill. Why? Well, Christian explains what's happened to him. He says, now when I kiss a woman, she usually responds, you wrote the book on kissing and that's the best you can do? Oh, the problem with being an expert. In his books, Christian says that there are around 25 different types of kisses. I'm not sure if Michael Christian includes the holy kiss in his list, but Paul certainly lists it here for the rest of us Christians. The rest of us Christians need to greet each other, he says, with a holy kiss. It's a good thing to greet one another with a spiritual smack, with a godly greeting, with a holy kiss. Just make sure it's holy. Once I had a man tell me, he actually told me 
that what first attracted him to the church was all the hugging that went on. He said that he made a deliberate effort to go around and hug all of the pretty women in the church. I got concerned. His hug was not a holy hug. In Paul's day, a kiss was a cultural greeting, sort of like a handshake today. Perhaps if Paul was writing to us today, he would say, greet one another with a holy handshake. The point is to extend warm, sincere greetings to one another. We need this. When we see each other, we need expressions of acceptance and togetherness. These are vital reminders of things that are important to us, that we're Christians, that we're in this together, that we're not taking each other for granted. The fact that we're all here, that we're all serving the Lord together, it needs to be celebrated. The moment I see you, I need to greet you. Wow, you're still one of us. You're still serving the Lord. That needs to be celebrated. That's why we need warm greetings between us. So, Just keep it holy. Paul finishes his letter. All the saints greet you. The believers in Macedonia were sending their best to the Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Notice the Trinity there in its close. All three members of the Godhead joined together to conclude this letter God ends with a blessing. May the Savior's grace, may the Father's love, may the Spirit's presence be with you all. And may we live every minute of every day in all three. The Father's love, the Savior's grace, and the Spirit's presence. Amen? And there we have Paul's second letter to the Corinthians.